Hello and welcome. The following message is from Benediction Church in Hamilton, Ontario. Alrighty. So, uh, we'll be reading from Luke 2, uh, verses 21 to 39. On the eighth day, when it was time to circumcise the child, he was, given, he was named Jesus, the name the angel had given him before he was conceived. When the time came for the purification rites required by the law of Moses, Joseph and Mary took him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice in keeping with what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of doves or two young pigeons. Now, there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon, who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was on him. It was revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. Moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts. When the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what the custom of the law required, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for the revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. The child's father and mother marveled at what had been said about him. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, this child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and a sword will pierce your own soul also. There was also a prophet, Anna, the daughter of Penuel of the tribe of Asher. She was very old. She had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage and then was a widow until she was 84. She never left the temple, but worshiped night and day, fasting and praying. Coming up to them at that very moment, she gave thanks to God and spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. When Joseph and Mary had done everything required by the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee, to their own town of Nazareth. This is the word of the Lord. Good, okay. I will start with a confession this morning. Uh, when Mike first reached out to me about preaching during the Advent season, this was back in October, I checked my schedule and I noticed that there was just one Sunday in December that made any sense for me. And so I agreed to be here now doing this today. Um, what I didn't do, and believe me, I should have, was properly consider the various weeks of Advent and the themes corresponding to each date. Had I done so, I would have noticed that this December 17th was precisely the Sunday I should have avoided preaching. So, uh, look, I, I certainly aim to maintain a certain joie de vivre, maybe now more than I ever have before, but the truth is that I don't know if I'm a person who has any business preaching about joy, especially over the past few years. I mean, maybe you can relate. We are in a world with not one, but two active significant wars going on. We've just come through a major global crisis, which in many cases deeply divided families along all sorts of lines, including the political. We've watched church after church collapse under moral failure. On a more personal level, yes, my faith is sincere, I'm still here, but it is also at this point restless and stubborn. 
And the truth is that the simple joys I once knew in faith have been harder to come by as the years have gone on. Things get complicated over time. Like many of us, I've watched heroes fall and fail, causing me to question my sense of purpose, mission, and belonging at times. Through all of that, joy in this faith of ours can seem like a naive thing, like some impossible wish, a cute thing meant for children like the Easter Bunny. In a way, that last sentence is kind of true in all the ways that maybe it should be true. But nevertheless, here I am begrudgingly preaching about joy. So, with that said, know that I am with you this morning. I am not preaching from a place of particular expertise, but rather probably preaching a sermon I need to hear myself. So, with that, let's uh, take a moment and pray. God, we thank you for this morning. We thank you that you are here. God, we thank you that we all gather together in many ways, like was being described about intro to worship. We, we come with our bumps and bruises and point each other to you. God, I pray that we would take in us a sense of joy in that and the hope that it brings with it. Amen. Okay, so Mike read us the story of Simeon and Anna from the Gospel of Luke. This is a narrative set as Mary and Joseph are presenting Jesus in the temple. So in doing so, they're basically fulfilling the requirements of Leviticus 12 and Exodus 13. So it's more or less a testament to their adherence to Jewish law. This might seem like a small detail, but it does underscore the piety of Jesus' family and sets the stage for these notable encounters with Simeon and Anna. And as is practically always the case, uh, everything we know about these two characters is contained in this one short text. We have Simeon, a righteous and devout man, awaiting for the consolation of Israel. So this is often understood as the coming of the Messiah. So here we go. But imagine Simeon's life. He's guided by this divine promise that he would not leave the world without witnessing the Messiah. And he had lived a very long time. Then the moment arrives. The Holy Spirit had whispered a kernel of truth to him, and there in his arms is the promised Savior. Now, tradition holds that Simeon breaks into song, you know, as one does when holding a baby. So these words have become known as, uh, I believe it's pronounced, Nunc Dimittis. It's a beloved hymn common to liturgies worldwide, which, as far as songwriters go, we know three lines about this guy. He wrote one song, as far as we know, spontaneously with a baby, and we know it now, 2,000 years later. Pretty good track record. It reads, Now, Master, you let your servant go in peace. You have fulfilled your promise. My own eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in sight of all the peoples. A light to bring the Gentiles from darkness, the glory of your people, Israel. I'll just notice real quick how joyous that face is. I'd like to, really amazing. But Simeon was an old man carrying a lifetime of faith and anticipation. And he finally cradles the embodiment of all of his hope. So for Simeon, joy wasn't just a fleeting emotion, but the culmination of a lifelong journey. Joy was the fruit of a long time spent in waiting. 
The same can be said of Anna. Like Simeon, the text tells us practically all we know about her. We know that she was widowed young, apparently lived with her husband only eight years, and she lived to be quite old. So she had been waiting diligently, never leaving the temple day after day, only to finally see the Messiah in the flesh in her twilight years. She was probably doing this somewhere between 60 and 70 years. For Simeon and Anna, joy was the fruit of a faithful, long wait. So as for me, being the now-and-then curmudgeon that I am, I find some strange comfort in this. If it's true for Simeon and it's true for Anna, perhaps there's a place for people like me just yet. Now, I ask the questions in the back of my head. I hear that voice. Aren't we Christians living here on the other side of the death and resurrection of Jesus expect to be relentlessly brimming with joy at all times, like sickeningly happy people living perfectly enviable lives? Who's been given that impression before? All right, yeah. I'm encouraged at this point by an essay written by a prominent theologian named Miroslav Volf. In it, he said, for reasons that I don't fully understand, joy, an emotion that ranks close to the top in the hierarchy of emotions, is also the least studied. Psychologists and philosophers don't bother much about it. Religious scholars, as distinct from preachers and spiritual masters, mention it only in passing. Even Wikipedia, which has entries on everything, has, dis has a disambiguation page instead of an article on joy. Joy is much richer than the feeling of happiness, even great happiness. Authentic joy, though, itself, though not itself the good life, is the emotional substance and manifestation of the good life. Later in this article, he continues, what kind of future does joy want? As it projects itself into the future, joy doesn't aim directly at changing the world. It simply delights in and celebrates the good that is and proclaims implicitly that it is good to, for that good to continue to be. All joy wants eternity, deep, deep eternity, wrote Frederick Nietzsche. Like love, joy is one of the eternity-seeking emotions. It wills itself as a permanent state. But just for that reason, it also wills all the objects that give it rise. And in this willing, joy sets itself tacitly against features of the world over which one cannot or should not rejoice, and does so without resentment and judgment. As such, joy is both the beginning and the end of authentic personal, social, and political transformation. In a sense, joy itself is the deposit, is a deposit of the kingdom of God in a world in which the things about which one might experience joy can seem like a far-off naive wish. So understanding joy, wrestling with joy, comes down to basically one question. What kind of future does joy want? So we're a fairly small group in here. So I'm going to have us play a little game, a little bit of interaction here. I want you to shout out, maybe not all at once, I'd like to hear a few actual answers, but shout out word association, something you associate with joy, whether it's an experience, a feeling, a memory, or even an object, or, or a smell, or whatever. What do you associate with joy? 
Laughter, okay. Jumping? All right, yeah, you jump for joy. I get it, okay, yeah. Family? Good food, amen. Singing, holidays? Sunshine, okay. End of, yes, end of to peace, maybe, yes. So what do these things suggest about the kind of future we want? What does peace suggest about future? What do holidays suggest about future? Singing, jumping, maybe an athletic one in my case. That would require some practice. What do the things that we associate with joy tell us about the kind of future we want? At this point, it seems important to acknowledge something which won't be unfamiliar to most of you. Mike's talked about it plenty. Like Israel in exile, we often find ourselves in a place that doesn't always feel like home, holidays, peace, jumping. Um, like Israel and Babylon, we often find ourselves disoriented, right? We're longing to feel a sense of peace in a world which seems to be bent towards war, abuse, and hurt. It so often feels like waiting. It's like tension without release. So we Christians live in what theologians often call a now-but-not-yet reality. So this concept underscores the belief that the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, the kingdom of God, has already begun on earth, but its full realization and fulfillment are yet to come in the future. So much like the reign of King David in the Old Testament, where a kingdom was inaugurated, but not yet fully consummated until later, this now-but-not-yet analogy helps to illustrate how we believers today live in a similar tension. We're actively participating in the kingdom that Jesus inaugurated, but still more or less awaiting its realization. And that tension is real. In Paul and the Faithfulness of God, theologian N.T. Wright puts it this way, the new creation has already been launched, and Messiah people must learn how to live within that new world. They are already in the new age. Equally, the final new creation is yet to come, and their behavior must look ahead to and live in accordance with something which is not yet a present reality. So Wright's reminding us that as believers, we live in an age ushered in by Christ, but we're also yearning and longing for its complete manifestation. Those realities coexist. I've heard it said once about this, that we live between D-Day and V-Day. This now but not yet shapes our journey where joy inevitably intertwines with longing and sorrow. The New Testament itself was written by people who are being persecuted, hunted down, they're in prison, they're isolated from their communities, from their sense of home. They lived as though they were already part of God's new movement through which the world has been changed and yet still will be changed. So we Christians today live in a constant tug of war, pulling stubbornly a hopeful tomorrow into today. Paul says so himself in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. As God's co-workers, we urge you not to receive God's grace in vain, for he says, in the time of my favor I heard you, and in the day of salvation I helped you. I tell you, now is the time of God's favor. Now is the day of salvation. We put no stumbling block in anyone's path, 
so that our ministry will not be discredited. Rather, as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way, in great endurance, in troubles, hardships, and distresses, in beatings, imprisonments, and riots, in hard work, sleepless nights, and hunger, in purity, understanding, patience, and kindness, in the Holy Spirit and in sincere love, in truthful speech, and in the power of God, with weapons of righteousness in the right hand and the left, through glory and dishonor, bad report and good report, genuine but regarded as impostors, known but regarded as unknown, dying and yet we live on, beaten and not killed, sorrowful yet always rejoicing. That really hits me, sorrowful but always rejoicing. You look up the dictionary definition of joy, that doesn't work. So there's something in how we understand joy that Paul doesn't mean. These tensions for Paul, written to the Corinthians, are part of normal Christian life. So no matter what our experience of Christian subculture might insist upon, if we're to take Paul seriously, joy has to mean something other than a plastic painted on happiness. If we're a now but not yet people, we're to know joy even as, maybe especially as, the weary. In a way, a Christian, a Christian commitment to joy is more rebellious than it is naive. So I quoted an essay from Miroslav Volf earlier. Later in that same essay, he continues, it's true, we have little control over feelings of joy. As a rule, they simply well up inside us when we perceive some unowed good has happened to us or those we care for. But we do have significant control over how we construe a situation and whether or not we're properly attentive to these unowed goods. He says, like love, joy is an eternity-seeking emotion. In other words, joy is an emotion precisely for the now but not yet, learning to celebrate glimpses of the not yet in the now. In thinking about all this, I'm reminded of one of my favorite Christmas carols that speaks to the heart of this tension. It's O Holy Night. Unlike Simeon's great liturgical hymn, Nunc Dimittis, this carol was not written by a faithful believer at all. A lot of people don't know this. It was instead written from a cursory reading of Luke by a more or less irreligious man with a penchant for poetry and a love of wine. Now, my French is really bad, so I apologize, but his name is Placide Capot de Roquemore. He was the commissioner of wines in a small town in France. And in 1847, he was asked by his parish priest to pen a poem for that year's Christmas Mass. He was a little shocked. He had a reputation. But more than happy to have his talents recognized, so he obliged. And it was so that he rode in this bumpy carriage all the way to Paris with the Gospel of Luke as his guide and penned in what is in French known as Cantique de Noël. It's probably pretty familiar, but the first verse reads, O holy night, the stars are brightly shining. It is the night of the dear Savior's birth, Long lay the world in sin and error pining till he appeared and the soul felt its worth. A thrill of hope, a weary world rejoices. 
for yonder breaks a new and glorious morn. A thrill of hope, the weary world rejoices, for yonder breaks a new and glorious morn. Of course, this is an English translation, but fully inspired by his own work, and not even a little bit musical, Placide sought out the help of his friend in Paris, a Jewish composer named Adolf Charles Adams. Three weeks later, the song was performed for the first time at a midnight mass on Christmas Eve. It would later become the first Christmas song performed by violin on American radio. And it is most likely loved by most of us here today, even if we dread hitting the high notes. Now, it may seem like an insignificant detail, but it strikes me, particularly in a world where I've, you know, written worship songs for a long time, and the intent of the writer is so often treated as this magical thing. And yet this song that we so love, this carol, beloved across the English-speaking world at least, seems to capture best the bittersweet and complex emotions of a weary world rejoicing. And it was written by an outsider looking in, reading Luke at a cursory glance. It's just right there. In reading, he saw, truly, he taught us to love one another. His law is love and his gospel is peace. Chains shall he break, for the slave is our brother, and in his name all oppression shall cease. Sweet hymns of joy in grateful chorus raise we. Let all within us praise his holy name. In 1847. Even at a cursory glance, Placide saw a story of hope and freedom, the inauguration of a now but not yet. From the outside looking in, in this gospel story, the birth of Christ is a story filled with joy as both an experience and a promise as yet unrealized in equal measure. But that doesn't make it easy. That doesn't make it easy at all. Part of what's so moving about this song, about this gospel story in Luke, is that it so often feels unlike our day-to-day -day life. Singing songs like this can be, in a way, like a foretaste of good things to come in and of itself. It's part of what we're doing every time we gather in worship, is practicing a thing, putting into practice a thing we know will be more true later than it is true now. That's part of the point. But over the past few years, it's come to feel foreign in many ways to imagine those good things in the future while so many heroes fall apart in front of our eyes. I know for me, this has sometimes felt like having the rug pulled out from under me. And some of you in this room know exactly what I'm talking about. Most of us in this room have watched heroes fall under the weight of expectations and ego. A few years ago, a popular podcast by Christianity Today came out, number one in podcasts at the time. It's called The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. It highlighted the events at Mars Hill Church in Seattle with Mark Driscoll. Many argued, of course, as a result, that the model itself must surely be the problem. Pastors weren't meant to be popular and have this much influence. Well, just over a decade ago, uh, Megan and I had someone who we had really looked up to most of our adult lives, most of our childhood, admit that they've been living a double life all along. What's worse 
in their interactions with us in the wake of all of this, they spiritualized some of the, some of the abuses they participated in. For Megan and I, many of our most vivid, our naive experiences of Christian joy were suddenly cast in a completely different and a lot more complicated light. I later became friends with uh, Zach Boland, who'd been the worship leader at Mars Hill in Seattle. So he was right there, signed the letter that put Mark Driscoll out of the church. We connected over how similar our experiences were, even though the scale was so unlike. We wrote a song about it. For him, so much of the story was wrapped up in ego and influence and all of the things that came along with it. But with a little bit of distance, he saw how little it had to do with it. I know that's not hard for some of you in this room. You've been in churches, and you've been part of churches falling apart for the very same reasons. But for me, in our church, there was no podcast, no video cameras, never much to speak of by way of influence or reach beyond a small circle of teenagers. But manipulation and hurt were there just the same. The brokenness of the human experience was alive and well. So 10 years ago, my wife and I and our kids, although they were largely unaware, were suddenly face to face with just how not yet the Christian life can be in the now. While deeply challenging, these moments of frankly bitter disappointment have also been for us an invitation to explore what joy truly means in a Christian's life, especially in times of disillusionment. I'll admit that Megan has probably done a better job of rejecting cynicism that <laughs> she shakes her head no than I have. Um, my commitment has been more at an abstract level. It's like a theory. I know in theory that I should not be cynical. She's tried better to do it and put the effort in. I feel challenged to do the same, even if I don't always know what that looks like, and joy fits in that perfectly. I feel challenged to joy, even though I don't know how. But in our way, we both cling stubbornly to it. I, I can't say I've been terribly successful, but our former mentor unknowingly gave us an important gift, which has been a little bit of a lifeboat. All along, this mentor of ours had the good sense to remind us that we shouldn't aspire to be like him, but rather to be like only the things we saw in him which reflected Christ, essentially injecting an only into 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, where Paul says, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. But he's making that as I follow do a lot of heavy lifting. He may not have known it, but this only has been helpful in the years since the rug was pulled out from under us. It's a constant reminder that we live in a now but not yet world. There is no person we can relate to who is perfectly the thing to aspire to be. In each of us, there is something of Christ that we look to be alike to. In this simple only, I find a reminder to constantly be looking for the not yet, even the impossible now of a seemingly broken world. And in that world, in the world that we actually live in, in the city we actually live in, with the neighbors we actually have, joy is a rebellious act, not a naive act. We stand against 
hopelessness and defeat and look forward to the good that we know to be true, even if we've only had glimpses of it. In a world at war, joy is a rebellious act. In a world with deep mental health struggles and families divided because of them, joy is a rebellious act. I'm, I'm not nearly as successful at this as I would wish. Like I said at the beginning, I have no business preaching this sermon. But I refuse to give up hope that it rings true. In Miroslav Volf's explanation of joy, it's an emotion deeply rooted in the experience of the good life. It's about savoring. Someone mentioned food. It's about savoring what we know to be good now and eagerly anticipating the good that's yet to come. This kind of joy is longing for the best moments and experiences to last as long as possible. We can't command feelings of joy, and we shouldn't just pretend they are there when they aren't. But we can shape our perception of even seemingly impossible situations, learning to recognize and appreciate the unearned blessings in our lives. Like love, joy grasps at eternity, fitting well in a world where we've experienced a taste of goodness now and eagerly await a fuller, more complete goodness in the future. Joy can, and for us likely should, coexist with feelings of sadness and disillusionment for the Christian. It's not about denying the reality of our struggles or the imperfections of our world. Joy is a defiant response to disappointment, acknowledging the good despite the presence of the bad. Seeing the good despite the presence of the bad. Wolf's understanding of joy resonates deeply with our experiences. It reminds us that joy in Christ is not just an emotion, it's a stance. A deliberate choice to embrace the goodness of God even when our circumstances are far from perfect. Now for me, the Advent season has always felt a little strange because as much as I love it, separating hope and peace and joy and love in the way that we do can feel a little like missing the point. It's, it's kind of hard to imagine one without the other. Peace without hope. Joy without hope. Love without joy. Joy without love. To have one, you have to have the other. And in that way, joy is a taste of the not yet in the now. It's inseparable from hope. So in this Advent season, I will stubbornly take Paul's instruction seriously, not to pretend to live as one without sorrow, but to be sorrowful, but always rejoicing. Even if I'm an old curmudgeon, and I worry that I am, I'm challenged to lean in and have faith that God might just mean that there are good things, truly good things to come. So in hope, in joy, I'll do my best to live and do joy clinging to a little of the not yet in the now. Let's pray. Thanks for listening to this message from Benediction Church in Hamilton, Ontario. Feel free to copy and share these resources, but please don't alter the content in any way. We invite you to visit us online again soon at www.benediction.church for more teaching and information about how you can join us in serving and praying that it would be in Hamilton as it is in heaven.